we're in the middle of a section on the solas of Scripture alone. And I'm spending a little bit more time because I, I believe that understanding that Scripture is the Word of God and understanding why we believe that and evidences for that is foundational to understanding any of the truths that are in God's Word and to understanding the validity of those. And so this morning we're going to switch gears. The last couple of weeks we've talked about some of the, the doctrine of, of God's Word and we've talked about inspiration and inerrancy and sufficiency and authority. And this morning I want to switch a little bit to understanding some of the arguments that we could have in a normal discussion with someone that doesn't believe in God's Word. What kinds of things could we talk about? What kinds of things could we say? Now we know that from time to time some of the printings of the Bible have had some errors in them. For instance, the first English language Bible to be printed in Ireland in 1716 encouraged its readers to sin on more (laughs) rather than sin no more. Just a little switch. What? Typo. Typo. They called it the Sin On Bible. (laughs) A similar error in 1653 had declared, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? (laughs) I have issues with that. There was the Wicked Bible of 1631 that reported the seventh commandment as thou shalt commit adultery. (laughs) That is a mistake. It infuriated King Charles. He ordered all copies destroyed, praise God, and fined all printers whose hand had touched the edition. Just a couple of of funny situations, but, but really, how do we know the Bible is God's Word? Especially in a culture where the Bible is under direct attack. And I've talked about that, and in, in the last couple of weeks, many of you have come to me and said, okay, this person at work is asking me this question. This person at school is asking me this question. And questions ranging from, well, isn't the Bible just a collection of fairy tales? Or, why would you really believe an old-fashioned book anyway? That was written so long ago, it's, it's, it's not relevant for today. How could you believe those fairy tales? And so how do we talk to somebody? How do we know? See, we, we can't go back, and as we talked about inspiration, we, we can't go and find a video of the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write. We don't have video proof, although with, with what people are doing on YouTube, maybe by next week someone will create that. But we, we don't have absolute proof of, the, of someone viewing them write that or a video of somebody writing the inspired Word of God. But that does not mean we don't have evidence does not mean we don't have evidence. The title of today's sermon, and actually we're going to spend a couple weeks on this, is Preponderance of Evidence. And the idea is, when we think of preponderance, the, the, the word actually means weight or being greater in number or force. And the idea is by bringing in a number of evidences, maybe each of which by itself does not give absolute proof, But when you bring in the weight of all the evidence, the preponderance of evidence, you have a case that is airtight. You have a case that we can say, the Bible is God's Word. The Bible is true. You know, I I think just in real terms, the other day, Susie got up and was looking in the refrigerator for Mark's lunch, and she was about to send him off to school and his lunch, and... um, she had a piece of pizza for Mark's lunch wrapped up and she got to the fridge and it was gone. And so thus the investigation began. 
And, and she, she took just a number of different evidences. Number one, it was gone. I mean, that, that's an obvious evidence. Um, then she looked in the trash can, and the saran wrap that it was in was in the trash can. Then she looked at, at evidence a little bit more, and after everyone else had gone to bed, her husband was still up. She talked to Mark, and Mark said he didn't eat it. She also knows me. She knows my character, my likes, my dislikes, and she knows that pizza happens to be a like. If it was coffee ice cream that was gone, she wouldn't have even suspected me. And so she came to me, and it was true. I didn't know it was his lunch, though. It was just a late-night snack in the fridge that um, I guess on the same night I had eaten that and part of her lunch for the next day. <laughs> so I don't get lunch anymore. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but do you see how just a number of evidences, a, a preponderance of evidence, came to a, a justified, accurate conclusion? Now, she didn't have video of me stealing Mark's lunch. Or borrowing, not borrowing taking. But she knew that it was true. That's preponderance of evidence in a, in a very simple way to understand. And, and this week and next week, we're going to look at eight different evidences that support the Bible being true. Evidences that I believe you can talk with someone about that even would say, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe the Bible is God's word. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to look at what the Bible says about itself. In any court case, for instance, if, if you're if you're discussing an event or just trying to find the truth of an event, are the, is the witness of the people involved in the event important? It's absolutely important. And so it is valid to look at what the Bible says about itself. It is valid to look at the character of God. And it's also valid to look at some of the other evidence, such as archaeological evidence and manuscript evidence. And we'll be wading through that. And I think it'll be a lot of fun in the next couple of weeks as my goal is that we as a congregation have tools to defend the validity of God's Word. It is that important that we not only know what we believe, but we know why we believe it and why it's true. So we're going to look at some evidences. Hopefully we'll get through four this morning. And then maybe four next week. If, if we move a little slower, then we'll just add a week because these are that important. I'd like to start by looking at Hebrews 11.1, 1, and it might seem like a, a strange place to start, but turn with me to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And I love that definition of faith, and it brings us to, to understanding a topic like how do we know the Bible is true, because there are aspects of faith to it. There are aspects of we believe it's true because God said it was true. But faith works hand in hand with our mind because God said that we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so it's important to also look intellectually and, and at some of the evidence. And this morning, that is the, the first verse we look at because we're going to, the two are not exclusive. Faith and, and intellect, faith and, and study are not exclusive of each other. They actually support each other. And some have said, well, we just need to take the Bible as God's Word and really don't care why we believe it. 
And I would argue that's not loving the Lord God with all your mind. Some say, well, unless I have the video of Paul writing it, I'm not going to believe it. And I've heard things like that from people who, who refuse to come to a point of believing the Bible is God's Word. And not only do I believe they're ignoring most of the evidence, but they're, they're lacking the faith in God Almighty and, and what God has done. And so the two go hand in hand. And so we start with that as we go through the different evidences. The first evidence we want to look at as you go to your notes is evidence about the author. Evidence about the author. If we're going to make an assessment of is this book true, is God's Word true, then let's look at the author. And I don't mean the human authors here, but the divine author. God's protection and provision would be the second half of that. Does God's protection and provision give us any evidence that the Bible is true? A couple of different points, and we'll move through these pretty quickly. And I know that we're just going to touch the surface on most of these issues. There are whole books written, and next week at the end I'll give you some suggested books that you can read more on. But hopefully we whet your appetite just a little bit. Get our minds going. Get us thinking about what we believe about the Bible. God's protection and provision. When we think about a God who loves us, a God who wants to be known by us, then we have to think through, okay, what would He do to make that possible? What would He do to accomplish that? How would He make sure that we can know Him and we can come to Him? First point I put there in sort of in legal languages, is their motive? Is their desire? In 1 John 3, verse 1, we read, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And we studied that as we went through 1 John. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And this is one of many verses that speak of our relationship with the Father. And the relationship we see is one of adopted children, one of love, one of knowing we can, we can go to Philippians 3 and, and read how Paul, his greatest joy is to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. The God who created the universe wants you to know Him. Wants you to be in relationship with Him. That is an important motive as we think of God's Word. Because really, how can you know somebody if you know nothing about them? How can you know somebody if you have no record of who they are and what they've done and how they've worked throughout all of history? See, if God wanted a people to worship Him, to know Him, He would provide a way to be known. A personal God would, would make sure that it's possible. And really, if we think about it, what's the best way to accomplish that throughout thousands and thousands of years? It's through a written record. It's through a written record. You know, we, you ever go back and look at letters from your past or notes from your past or old yearbooks? And it helps you remember. And it helps, it's a written record of what has happened in the past. Quite frankly, I forget most of those things. I've completely forgotten most of high school and, and most of those relationships. I couldn't list you all the friends I had in high school. But I go back and I can begin to see it and I can begin to remember. A written record makes all the difference. You know, sort of the, the converse of that, we, we say if you're having an argument with somebody or sharing feelings that are difficult, never write it. 
Never write it in a letter, never write it in an email. Why? Because there's a written record that people can go back and even after resolution, they can remember the, the drama, the, the hate, the, the, and it can spill out. And so a written record helps us come back to what has happened before. A personal God that wants to be known will preserve who He is and the revelation about Himself in the best and most reliable way to make this happen. It's the person making a contract saying, can I get that in writing? Can I get that in writing? Because salesmen will say anything, right? Other than the salesmen that are here. Well, we have it in writing. This is his primary revelation of himself to his people. It is his very words. He will preserve and protect it. He has motive to do so. So then the second question is, okay, there's motive, but is there ability? Is there ability, could God protect and preserve His Word if He wanted to? Could He inspire men to write His Word? Could He then protect it throughout the thousands of years and bring it to us today in an accurate representation of what His revelation is to us? And we say absolutely. Absolutely. We sang this morning, How Great Thou Art. Do you believe that? Do you believe our God is omnipotent? that He has all power, that He created all things. And if we believe that, is it really that huge of a step to believe that He could preserve some written documents for a couple thousand years since He created them and all elements that are part of them? Our God is omnipotent. Colossians 1.16 For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and and for Him. Jesus' own words in Matthew 19.26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so when we look at the author, he is a God that wants us to know Him, And He is a God who is omnipotent, who is divinely able to protect and preserve His Word. And really to think that He wouldn't, I would argue takes more faith than to think that He would. We know from our talk on inspiration that God through His Holy Spirit was controlling the writing of individual books. He was controlling their selection He was divinely appointing how they came together throughout all of history. He protects and preserves His Word. Just sort of a a thought. And throughout this, we'll look at just some logical thoughts. What is the point of inspiration if there's no protection and preservation? Why go to the work of inspiring someone to write God's Word if you're not willing to protect and preserve it? It makes no sense. And those that say that he doesn't are missing the point. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you see how, how God's Word came to us? And we, we looked at that verse in inspiration as well. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
They were, they were moved by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit. And not only in the writing of His Word, but the Holy Spirit has been active from that day on to protect and preserve His Word to make sure that we receive it today. And so we can read words like Psalm 119.89. Your Word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Amen? Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. And so we start with some evidence about the author. Was there motive? Absolutely. Was there ability? Unquestionably. We move to evidence number two. Evidence about the nature of the Bible. We look at who wrote it, and, and someone that doesn't believe in the Bible would say, okay, who claimed to write it. And then we look at, okay, let's look at the words itself. Let's look at the nature of it. We'll look a little bit later in the next point at internal evidence. But what is the nature of the Bible? And you just listen to some of these facts about the Bible. And you can write some down if you want. And and a number of these, you have to understand, I didn't find all of these in archaeological digs. There's a number of books, such as Josh McDowell's book, and um, Clint Arnold has a book, and um, Norman Geisler. Great books that we can use. And, and so these facts are, are really a compilation of things out of a number of those books and research that has been done by men who, who are much better at research and, and of antiquities than I am. But the Bible was written over a 1,500-year span. And just think about that alone. If you write something over a 10-year span, you can go back and see the differences, can't you? You can see, you can go back to your journal from 10 years ago. Wow, I wrote that? That is so different from what I am now. But the Bible is written over a 1,500-year span. It was written by over 40 different authors who lived in different time periods and from every walk of life. And think about some of the authors and the different walks of life. David and Solomon. What were they? They were kings, absolutely. Peter and John. Fishermen. A little bit of a difference there. Moses. Leader of his people, but before that a shepherd. Amos was also a shepherd. Luke. Doctor. If anyone could read his right now. Um. Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, theologian of his day. Matthew, tax collector. Daniel was a statesman. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah, thank you, you better get that one. (laughs) Forty different authors from all walks of life, all different time periods. Pretty amazing. It was written from different places and different times. You have Moses in the wilderness, Jeremiah in a dungeon, Daniel in a palace, Paul in churches and in prison, John in exile on Patmos. Times of war, times of peace, times of captivity, different rulers. The Bible was written in three different languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, Aramaic and Greek. 
It speaks to literally hundreds of controversial topics. Many of, of you have debated some of those topics. Well, what does the Bible say about this? Why does it say this? It's written in different moods and different styles of writing. Moods like sorrow, joy, doubt, despair. Whatever you're feeling, you can pretty much go to a passage and find something that relates to that. But also, you have poetry. You have narrative. You have prophecy. You have epistles. You have song. You have the law. You have parables and and many more. What a diverse collection of writings. It was written on three different continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written to different people groups. Yet, because up till now you can say, okay, that's all nice. We have other collections of writings. But here's the point. Yet it contains the same underlying theme throughout the books. It contains the same underlying theme throughout the books. Whose story is it? Whose story is it? And and from Genesis to Revelation, it is God redeeming His people to Himself through Jesus Christ. And the entire book, with all these different authors and languages and moods and styles, it all contributes to the same story. Never in history has there been another book that does that. Never in history have so many authors been able to write a story that, that... is, has a unity to it. I remember on some youth trips, they, the, the students would do like these three-word stories or sentence stories. Have you ever heard that? Where someone would start with a topic and say a sentence, and then someone else would, would continue with it. And so if I was to say, and, and we saw cows on the way, and see if any of you are brave enough to do this, I would say, oh, there's a cow on the side of the road. And someone else would say, Let's eat it. Okay, and then someone else would say? Let's have a barbecue. That's good barbecue. Okay, and then someone else? Moo. Moo. (laughs) Keep going. What kind of barbecues do you have? The Hershey syrup. And then someone else might start talking about ice cream. And it was amazing where these stories went. You can only imagine. And we have 40 different authors over 1,500 years writing after each other, and we have it all about one story, united and in agreement with each other. We couldn't even do that in 15 minutes on a youth trip. It's amazing. It's amazing. See, in the Bible, we have the story of paradise lost in Genesis to paradise regained in Revelation. And God's divine hand as He made that possible. It's the story of God's glory that has been violated with paradise lost and regained and vindicated in paradise restored. It has one main character. God Almighty, the true and living God. Evidence about the nature of the Bible. The second part of that, I don't think I gave you, it's, it's uniqueness coupled with unity. 
It's uniqueness coupled with unity. See, the Bible does not contradict itself. In fact, it corroborates itself throughout time with prophecy and fulfillment. Some of those we'll look at next week. There have been no proposed contradictions in the Bible that have not been resolved. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago with how to resolve those, even though people have tried for centuries. Is there any other book like that? Other books have tried bringing authors together. And usually the authors are refuting each other and giving different points of view that are just completely opposite to each other. But this is one of the evidences. There is no other book that has accomplished that. The Bible is God's Word. I want to read just a section that Josh McDowell wrote that sort of summarizes that. Yet in spite of these facts, not once does the Bible contradict itself. Not once does one writer disagree with another. From cover to cover, the Bible exhibits a remarkable unity and continuity. It begins with the creation of the present world and ends with the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. In the midst, it unfolds the great doctrines such as the nature of God, the doctrine of sin, the depravity of man, the doctrine of salvation, etc. From Genesis to Revelation. However, Scripture resolves around one central theme of redemption of mankind. The Old Testament is the preparation. The Gospels are the manifestation. The book of Acts is the propagation. The epistles give the explanation. The book of Revelation is the consummation. The Bible is all about Jesus. In fact, to account for the Bible and its unity by natural means is a greater miracle than inspiration. In evidence, where does the evidence point? What's the natural conclusion? And the conclusion has to be that this is the Word of God divinely protected, divinely appointed. Just some other interesting facts about God's Word. Circulation. In 1998, 20.8 million full Bibles sold in that year alone. Billions have been distributed to date. No other book has come close. It doesn't prove that the Bible is God's Word, but it's another piece of evidence that this is a unique and different book. Translations. It has been translated into more languages than any other book on the face of the planet in history. There's estimated 6,900 plus languages worldwide worldwide right now. 4,800 languages have at least a portion of the Bible or translation work started. 4,800 languages. If you want more information on that, just go have fun on Wycliffe's website. Look at some of the stats. Look at some of what God is doing. No other book even comes close. And yet people say it's out of date and no one really reads it anymore. Even though it's the most purchased book in history, the most distributed, and in the most languages in history, where does the evidence point? It has survived through time, through persecution, through criticism. It is unique and superior to all other books. So we have testimony of the na- from the nature of the Bible. 
Third testimony is internal testimony. The testimony of Scripture itself. If we're to try to to convince someone, if we're trying to tell someone about the Bible and why we believe the Bible is God's Word, it's okay to use the Bible and, and use what claims it makes about itself. Now, they may not accept those claims, but at the end, you bring them to a conclusion to say, okay, either those claims are true or the Bible is intentionally trying to deceive people. It's one or the other. And then they're faced with having to deal with the claims of Scripture. I didn't put a lot of verses there, even though I have several pages. And I'd like you to just listen. And I'm just going to read Scripture. What does the Bible claim about itself? Every time you hear the words, and God said, the Bible is claiming divine inspiration. Every time you hear the words, the Lord said, same thing. It's claiming that these words are from God himself. In the Old Testament alone, there's over 2,600 claims like that. Let me read some. Exodus 24.4 When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Deuteronomy 4.2 Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And when he's talking about the law of the Lord, he's talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books there. He's saying it's from God Himself. Christ, the words of Jesus and talking about the Old Testament in Luke. In the upper room, Jesus told the disciples that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning Me. And those were the three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms or the poetry. And Jesus said everything written there must be fulfilled. It's true. Leviticus 4.1 and many, many more in the Old Testament. The Lord said to Moses, and then it's recorded what God Himself said. Exodus 17.14 Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Deuteronomy 31 So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Isaiah 1-2, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The Lord has spoken. Isaiah 43-1, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by my name. You are mine. Again, the Lord says, Jeremiah, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Joel, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the Scriptures? And he's quoting Psalm 118 and calling it Scripture. John 5, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. And he's referring to the Old Testament. 
2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Peter 3.2, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter's talking about Paul's writings, shares his feelings about them. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. Peter is calling Paul's writing scripture. 1 Corinthians 14.37 If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And we could go on and on and on. But when we look at the internal evidence, we see that the Bible clearly claims about itself that it is Scripture. The authors clearly claim that they are writing the very Word of God. You cannot, just as we would argue about Christ, we, would, we could argue about God's Word, you cannot claim that it is just a good book. Because either it's God's Word as it claims, or it's trying to deceive you. You cannot have it both ways. Are the writers delusional? And that's where we compare all the other evidence. Were they writing truth? And with many of the other evidence, we'll see that they were writing truth. So why would we take these statements and say they're false? Second question on internal, on, on internal evidence. Does it agree with itself? Is there internal consistency? And we've talked about that. There have been no errors or contradictions that have stood the test of time that have stood study. And then C, does the writing content and style support accuracy? And so, okay, what do you mean by that? Basically, it's would the writers have really written this if they were making it up? I mean, really? Think about some of the things that are included in God's Word. If I'm making up a story, number one, who's the hero? Me. Do I include the things that make me look bad? No, no. I, you see it with your kids when they're retelling stories. It's great. Whoever's telling the story is right. And if, if, if I'm making this up and trying to convince a world, there's just things that I wouldn't write. And these arguments really come to logic. And, and again, they don't stand isolated by themselves as sole proofs of God's Word, but it's the preponderance of evidence. The writers included embarrassing details about themselves. And not just with the Bible, but with any ancient book, that's something that scholars say raises the probability of accuracy. Raises the probability of truthfulness. I mean, how many times did the disciples that were writing say they didn't understand what Jesus was saying? I don't usually say I'm, I'm ignorant. You know, you have disciples recording that they're uncaring. Jesus, their, their, their master, their mentor, asks them to pray in the garden, and what do they do? They fall asleep. Not once. Twice. I wouldn't include that. 
They're rebuked. Satan is called, Peter is called Satan by Jesus. Paul rebuked Peter harshly in Galatians. You know, they, they record themselves as cowardly at times. Peter denies Christ three times. Where were the disciples at the cross? In Matthew 26, we, we read that they deserted Christ and they fled. Not something you would write if you were making up a story. Their doubt is recorded. Negative comments from, from people around about Jesus were recorded. He wasn't believed by his own brothers. He's called a madman. Would you write that? If you're making it up? They left in demanding statements by Jesus. You can pretty much take the whole Sermon on the Mount and put it in that category. If you lust, you've committed adultery. Turn the other cheek. If someone demands your, your cloak or your tunic, give them your cloak too. If they demand you go one mile, go another mile with them. Love your enemies. What? Would you write that? Do not store up treasures on earth where they corrupt and are destroyed. There's just other parts that culturally they wouldn't have made up. At the resurrection, who were the first witnesses? Women. And, and in their culture, that would have been unheard of that your first witnesses were women. If you're making up a story that you want people to believe, you have your first witnesses be men of authority. You have things like in Matthew 28, an explanation of the rumor of the stolen body going around. An explanation that people reading at the time would have easily said, that's not going around. But it's proof that the body was missing. You can't make that up without being called on it. Names and dates are used. If I'm making up a story, I tend to not include a lot of historical facts. It's easy to check. More than 30 historically confirmed people are in the New Testament alone. It's an amazing, amazing consistency. Writers describe miracles like other historical events. But in, in fictitious writing we see they take miracles and they embellish them and they become larger than life. But the writers in the Bible just record them as, as facts, very simply. And then the authors, especially the New Testament authors, were willing to die for what they wrote. They were willing to die rather than recant. Very few people would do that for a made-up story. These are all things to think about as we consider, is the Bible true? What's the internal testimony? The testimony of Scripture itself. Finally, the fourth one we'll look at today, and we'll look at four more next week. What is the corroborating evidence? Corroborating evidence. The testimony of other eyewitnesses and of the early church. What did people that, that were not biblical authors say? How did they respond? How did the early church respond? Because they were, these were eyewitnesses. And what's interesting is the Bible, and, and especially the New Testament, was was distributed during a time when the eyewitnesses were still alive. 
It would be like if I was to distribute a story about a fight that happened at the wedding yesterday. I don't know if you saw Joshua and Sarah, but they were just going at it at dinner and throwing food at each other and their fists were flying. You know, I could come up with a great story. Now, what's the problem with that? You were all there. Not only is there not other evidence except for the cake thing, yeah. Um, You were all there. And so if I say that, what do you say to me? You're nuts. You're nuts. And in an environment where people were trying to refute Christianity, do you think that somebody would have stood up and said that's not true? It takes more faith to believe it's not true. Acts 2.22. Let's read some of the things that the Bible says as people heard about the news. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter is preaching to a crowd of unbelievers. To a crowd of Jews who were hostile to the message. Men of Israel, listen to this in verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through Him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put Him to death by nailing Him to the cross. It's always fun to be accused of murder. But jump ahead to verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their numbers that day. So the eyewitnesses that were there, did they deny what Peter was saying? Did they refute it? Or did 3,000 of them come to the Lord? Acts 26, we see the same thing. It's interesting. If we go beyond the the actual time of, of these events and we look at the early church, there's a couple of clues we have about how the early church viewed God's Word. One is in the canon, and and in two weeks we'll talk about the canon, we'll talk about how we got the canon, how we figured or how, how we discovered which books were inspired. But the church accepted these books as the inspired Word of God. In fact, the early church fathers in the second and third century were talking somewhere between. 70 A.D., which actually isn't that long after the events, and some of the the New Testament was probably written after that. From 70 A.D. to 250 A.D., we have a number of writings from church fathers. And people that have studied it have gone through, and they can find all but 11 verses of the New Testament quoted by early church fathers as Scripture. It's amazing. In fact, it's been estimated that if we were to lose all copies of the New Testament, we could recreate the entirety of the New Testament simply by the writings of the early church fathers. Corroborating evidence. No other book in history can be, that can be said of. 
Men like Arrhenius, Ignatius, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, Clement, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Origen, Hippolytus, Cyprian, all acknowledged that this book was different. It was the Holy Word of God. Four evidences today. Next week, four more. We'll look at manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence. We'll look at what non-Christian historians wrote about the events of the Bible. But do we believe this morning that God Almighty is capable of preserving His Word? I come back to point number one. And amen, we do. Lord God, our Father, how great You are. Beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension, how great You are. And Lord, we end our time by worshiping You, by focusing on You, who You are, Your omnipotent Creator of the universe, the King of all things, sovereign over all things. Thank You for knowing us and wanting to be known by us. Oh, the wonders of Your grace. Thank you, Lord God, in your name, amen.